Welcome to the IoT Podcast, brought to you by MarketScale. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, and joining me today is Scott Noteboom, founder and CEO of LitBit. Scott, how are you doing today? Daniel, I'm doing real good. How are you? I'm great. Yeah, you know, I'm really excited to have you on the podcast today and talk a bit more about the relationship between machines and humans and how that's evolving and then how we can use knowledge to increase our productivity. Yeah, no, that sounds good. That's uh, what I've been buried in. So it's my current obsession. So uh, no, it'd be good to talk. Yeah, perfect. Well, then you must have a lot to chat about then. (laughs) Yeah, sometimes too much, I suppose. Right. (laughs) All right. So let's start with you. Let's get to know a little bit more about Scott Noteboom. So why don't you tell me a bit about how you got involved in this industry? Yeah. So kind of when I look back at my career and uh, being a little bit of a product person, you always try to put a market spin on things. I always say that, you know, I guess I, I was always destined to be a rebel and where should a rebel be involved in in revolutions. So you know, when you look at kind of this post-industrial revolution era, era since like the 1970s, uh, I was born in 1971. So I've been able to participate in a lot of the steps of this kind of next big wave, which would be, you know, starting in computers really early on then getting into the mobile space and then uh, building, you know, kind of a, a CLEC communication provider in the voice over IP space you know, during the kind of post-Telecom Act in 1996 to then forming, you know, kind of an internet service provider on top of that, which kind of symbolizes the internet revolution. Then I chased the wave to the cloud revolution and kind of helped build a couple, you know, of the bigger clouds in the world. And now kind of the cherry on top of this Sunday we've been building is, uh, which I think will be the moniker that this entire era will end up being named is uh, the knowledge revolution of you know, now that we've, you know, added all of these key ingredients, you know, what is the final ingredient that goes on the top that enables this kind of entire era between the 1970s and the 2070s to kind of come together? So I've been uh, riding that wave. It's caused me to lose my hair, um, but I have some fun days along the way. So it's been worth it. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you've been involved in every step of the process. And is is the knowledge revolution where you've seen things going from the beginning? Is that sort of that end capstone to the whole wave? Well, what's funny is, is I, I would say that most people, uh, you know, kind of when you look at eras, and if you go back to this kind of previous golden era of productivity in the world, which would be, you know, today's called the industrial revolution. When you go back to the, you know, the 1870s, that started as kind of the steam revolution that then become the railway revolution, the steel revolution, the electricity to the oil to the automobile revolution. And then what you find is, is during the second half of that, you know, everything solidifies in regards to, you know, that greatly magnified the product, the, the labor productivity of people in the world. Thus, you know, it ended up being called the, uh, you know, the industrial revolution, what we're in now, you know, kind of started out as the microcomputer revolution, then became the mobile revolution, the telecom, the internet, the cloud revolution. And I think people still broadly call this kind of the information and the communication revolution. And however, what I think is, is the last step, which is really the knowledge uh, side of things is, is my prediction is, is, you know, between the, the next 50 years, that is really going to be the namesake of, of this past hundred year era 
um, because it is kind of what enables all these dots to connect together. Right, absolutely. So, you know, with each of those eras, it seems like there's more advancements with technology and as machines increase their productivity and their resourcefulness and we sort of start to rise along with that, you know, we, we continue to interact more with these machines. So what trends have you noticed with dealing with that interaction between humans and machines? Well, it largely gets into what the roles of the machines have been. Um, you know, the, the roles of machines starting pretty early, you know, were, were very physical or labor in nature, uh, you know, a punch press, a printing press. Uh, then the roles of machines, be, you know, got into the computing side of things. And, and really what we saw in this Internet era is the roles of machines have largely been to produce information or data you know, most of us have gotten so wrapped around the axle of, you know, the importance of data, big data, data this, data that. But the, the problem in the era that we're in right now is, is we have so much data and, and that path isn't continuing on, um, isn't going to slow down anytime soon, that we've got into a perspective of now there's so much data. How do we make sense of data? So how do we turn data, which largely is just zeros and ones, into something that really means something? And right now, knowledge is kind of still held as a sacred human thing of, you know, it's a human's job to apply, you know, analysis and, you know, critical thinking to form knowledge. And because we're not able to digest all the information that's being that we're being hit with, we've now entered this era and you see it in the news of the, the era of misinformation or the quote unquote fake news era, where now we have so much information that we are not humanly able to digest it and process it into knowledge that we understand is truth. So thus we've entered in this, this awkward phase in history where we have a difficult time understanding what truth means and how do we get out of that? You know, how do we magnify the productivity of critical thinking and knowledge to match the magnification in information and data that we have and that's really what this next kind of cherry on top of the cake is, is how do we now take so much of this data and magnify people's ability to process it and form it into knowledge? And you know, to me, that's what this AI and knowledge revolution is all about. And it's really applying to critical thinking and knowledge. Uh, a similar exponential magnification that we did, you know, 100 years ago when, we, you know, we were, you know, jumping into applying scale on the, the you know, the, the physical side of things or the industrial revolution. You know, I'd say that most people consider the amount of information that we get definitely something that is a positive, right? That we have so much access to information and it can be so quick. We have a question on something boom, we can answer it immediately. But you're almost making it sound like it's getting to the point where there's so much information that it's just a burden. It's not even a blessing anymore. Yeah. So when you look at a lot of the division that's occurring around the world because of diverse understand, you know, divergent understandings of what truth is that that's caused by just massive floods of information, uh, you know, I got into, you know, so when I was a kid, I started a bulletin board service that grew to a pretty good size ISP. And it was, you know, why do I get into revolution for idealistic reasons? You know, I'm going to be able to learn anything from, you know, immediately. And I'm going to be able to communicate with anyone in the world. 
But then what happens, you know, where I underestimated thing was, the, you know, along with information comes an equal amount of misinformation. And it is, we're in this era of confusion, which, you know, speaking as an American, I think presents one of the biggest risks of our modern society today, which we have to solve. And that's caused by, that's caused by data and information. Right. I mean, as a, as a journalist myself, I, I completely understand where you're coming from. You know, every day it's dissecting information and trying to figure out what is what is essential, what is true, and you don't want to skew something in a wrong direction, right? You know, everything has to be clear. And so that is definitely a struggle. Um, but I guess what I'm wondering is beyond the personal level, you know, beyond person to person, how does this flood of information affect industries or affect businesses? Well, if you look at any, you know, some of the past companies that I come from and, you know, even Google to a certain degree, what it does is, is you end up having more information than you are able to process and make sense of. And, you know, the, the race that we're on is as that volume of information is going up, how do we keep up with the processing on it? And I, I would say, I don't think there's a, a company on the planet that's been able to do that yet. And, and uh, at the same time with that, I, I guess it, the macro answer is, is in order to reach the true potential of this revolution, we need to be able to scale everything that we built, starting with the microcomputer all the way through the cloud and the data in particular. And until we're able to apply true scale to all of that, we're, we're leaving opportunity at the table. It's, it's the, you know, the challenge of, you know, we have a fancy machine that can, you know, punch out an automobile, but, but we don't have people who can operate the machine. Meaning, you know, the first half of the industrial revolution was all about the innovations and the tools. The second half of the industrial revolution, kind of World War II on, was how do we apply true scale to those innovations to be able to, to, to get the true fruits of, of everything that's happened? And I would say the same thing applies here. I think we have all the tools in place or many of the tools in place, but the tools are still in this awkward phase of, of not being able to deliver against their true potential because we don't know how to effectively apply scale to it. I, you know, that, that's a very difficult question, but I, I think at a high level, that's what I think. It seems like maybe a way to bridge that gap between an abundance of information and turning that information into knowledge and into something valuable might come from artificial intelligence. I mean, I know the issue is we have, you know, th these machines are creating more information than we can handle. Um, but could you see artificial intelligence being a way to solve this issue? I do. I think there's a lot of, you know, ethical issues and regulation issues because effectively what you're doing is, is, you know, just like a scribe that used to take three and a half months to produce a book, you know, many years ago, and now we can publish a book to the world instantly. There's a certain level of trust in the publication or the determination of the publication of that knowledge, just like, you know, words in a book, you know, many years ago. So I would say done right. If we really need to exponentially increase our ability to process and form knowledge, you know, all of us know as adults that you know, if I could get 10% smarter this year, um, for me as an individual, that would, you know, I'd take that any day. That, that's a, that's a, a really big reach. 
where um, when you have data that's exponentially uh, increasing every year, um, how do we as humans match the exponential pace of growth in all these other categories with knowledge? And the way to do that is to, to use technology to augment the productivity or the production of knowledge. So yeah, I'm a big believer in it. I think it's the scariest thing going on on the planet, but I also think that you know it is the thing that is going to magnify productivity on the planet uh, at the same time without being hugely impactful on the environment. And you know, magnifying productivity on the planet results in good things for people that are involved in it. You know, along the lines, if you look at kind of you know the growth of productivity in the planet during the industrial phase 1870 to the 1970s you know we were in that hockey puck era and since the 70s things have kind of flattened and when things flatten then it's you know if we don't have exponential gains in productivity then you start to see more war then you start to see sacrificing in the middle class then you start to see division around politics you know so what is the next big thing that's going to enable that just global increase of, of output and productivity. And I think it really revolves around knowledge being the next step. So yeah, I'm a believer in that. Right. Since you said earlier, knowledge seems more of a human attribute, you're finding a way to reach that at a machine level, and then you can turn that into a high level of productivity, right? I mean, having some kind of machine that can read this influx of data at at a rate that is just unimaginable and then pump out accurate results. I mean, that would that would revolutionize everything. Yeah. And I think you have to look at like a foundational aspect of how to look at things. And it gets into, you know, in machine learning lingo, it would be supervised versus unsupervised learning. See, my belief is one of the important thresholds that we need to cross. And it's really the cloud that's enabled this, you know, the clouds enabled you know, global, horizontally distributed, incredibly low cost, scalable compute resources. And what's that going to allow is, you know, why are we in a world right now where more and more people have to go to college and get a computer science degree and learn how to communicate in quote unquote code, which is a very telling word. Effectively, you're teaching humans how to communicate like a computer, um, when, you know, with low-cost cloud capabilities, how can we begin to use those commodity resources as people, we're not commodities, to teach computers to be able to communicate and dialogue uh, under human terms? Um, so how can you program or teach a computer using the human language versus quote-unquote code? So I think, you know, the progressions we see in natural language processing and, you know, other initiatives in that are really important because my belief is the first step to artificial intelligence is how can you have that AI persona, as we call it, being able to communicate with any person with a particular area of subject knowledge um, that you know doesn't need to be a data scientist or a programmer or understand code or algorithms, but they may be an expert in you know how to run an you know an industrial machine or how to fix a car. You know, so I really see people as being the, the most valuable initial mentor to these AI personas. And then as people begin to mentor it and it begins to learn, then you can apply the unsupervised learning and start to have the computer also begin to learn things on its own in addition to 
people who largely will manage and mentor those AI personas. Um, you know, that, that's what I think is, is uh, an, an approach that we've been focused on. So what are some specific examples of ways that an AI persona can be applied to some kind of industry and, and improve the productivity there? Well, I'll talk about a little bit about what we've been working on. So to very simplistically give you an answer that everyone can relate to is an example of two AI personas would be Siri and Alexa. And I would say that when I was at Apple, you know, the deployment of Siri, you know, globally was one of the last big projects that I worked on that actually motivated me thinking about what I'm working on today. So the, the way to think about things is, is these custom domain, uh, these custom AI personas that have specific domain expertise, think of them like a Siri or Alexa, but instead of knowing, you know, the weather or, you know, the scores to a sports game, um, these are personas that you can actually engage with and teach the persona your particular areas of subject matter expertise. So where we're focused on is, you know, how can we consolidate the knowledge of, you know, people that are focused on managing, you know, industrial machinery and being able to teach a persona that, you know, this is what failure sounds like, looks like, feels like, and means from a, from a logical perspective of data and giving them a human and machine learning interface that enables um, them to teach an AI persona. A classic example is, is, you know, you want to teach the AI persona to recognize what a particular circuit board is for. And what you can do is, is you can take your smartphone and kind of take a one minute video of this circuit board from different angles and distances that you think the persona would, would look at it from and tell the persona that, Hey, this is a, you know, rectifier controller card for a Liebert 610 industrial machine. And then, um, you know, when you need the persona to know this, you could have an engineer in the other side of the world going, you know, I'm working on this machine. You know, I wonder if this is the right part. Let me ask my persona what this is. And then, you know, within 30 seconds, being able to take a look at, you know, an image from your camera and be able to come back and say, you know, hey, this is a rectifier controller card for whatever machine. So it really gets down to, and the important area that we're focused on is as humans, one of our customers asked a really kind of smart question that I had to think about. And they said, you know, how is an AI persona going to connect with the real world? You know, an AI lives in the virtual world. It's in the computer world. And uh, the silly reply that I gave is, is, if you close your eyes and do your best to turn off all of your five senses, and if you imagine that your five senses were turned off, you know, sight, sound, touch, taste, and feel, um, imagine what, would your mind then be in the, the physical world or the virtual world? So a lot of what we're focused on is how do we use sensors combined with data science to, to give the the persona comprehension of what those sensors mean, which would be senses. And it's actually senses, you know, sight, sound, touch, logic, taste, whatever that uh, enables the AI to connect with the physical world. So it's, we're using the same logic and we're, we're giving the same tools to the AI that we uh, have as people, because that's what we understand. What's interesting in this AI side of things is, is there is just as much a humanities challenge as there is an engineering challenge, which actually makes the challenge all that more difficult. 
um, but also gives all that more opportunity. What are some of the biggest challenges that you've seen in trying to implement AI for these purposes? Um, because I think the average person would consider artificial intelligence like something like Siri or like Alexa. You know, it's helping them solve small daily tasks. But once you expand to the point where artificial intelligence is helping engineers, it's helping doctors, it's helping people in professions actually do their job and increase their productivity. What are some challenges you've seen with that? Yeah, it's the ability to relate what it is. And I would say that that is the biggest problem. So what's interesting is, is if you rewind, and I, I was an early computer kid, um, and if you rewind back in time, let's just say into the you know earlier to mid-1980s, everyone kind of knew, you know, there was a lot of talk that, you know, computers can do this, you know, computers can help, you know, help us, you know, get rockets onto the moon and computers can help, you know, help the banking system. So we as common people knew what computers were doing for other people from a general sense of things, which by the way, that's the era that I think we're at with Siri and Alexa. But from a very intimate level, getting a computer on people's desk for the very first time, which is not not what computers are doing for the world or what computers are doing for other things that may affect me, but how now, how am I engaged with that computer? So it's actually doing things very personal for me or my business in particular. So, you know, how do you get people, you know, in the 1980s is how do you show people how to adopt computers and put them to use personally for you, specifically what you need them to be useful for? And I think we're at the same thing. I think when people think of AI, there's general examples of how AI is starting to affect the world overall. But when it comes to being a very personal experience, uh, particularly when it comes to knowledge, which is, you know, personal knowledge, tribal knowledge, and, you know, how do we address that as people? I think that it's people don't completely comprehend it yet. And I think it's an even bigger challenge of, you know, just like if you went in the 80s and just put a computer on someone's desk, um, how do you get them to figure that out? And and that's kind of in that awkward phase where we're at, where everyone, you know, is, you know, just like PC was a two-letter acronym that everyone knew was a big thing, but couldn't personally relate to, AI is kind of in that same place, you know, so how do we get society to relate to it? How do we give a user experience so that the adoption of it um, is uh, easier? The adoption of it is less threatening because, you know, this is a scary territory into things. And, you know, how do we regulate it so people can be more comfortable of it versus being threatened by it, which is uh, uh, tends to be uh, pretty prevalent right now. So I think that we are in that phase, which, by the way, isn't a lot different than, you know, there was a lot of thought leaders in the world throughout history that felt that, you know, teaching, you know, having everyone on the planet able to read was going to be a risk to society. Um, you know, it's uh, this is kind of a next uh, supercharged version of reading, if you think about it. And it's going to be really tough waters to navigate. So navigating those waters, um, you know, the, the risk reward. Um, and navigating it right or wrong is, is probably as big as it ever will be in history. That, that's the biggest challenge um, 
And that's a bigger, that's a bigger humanities challenge than it is a technology challenge. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like (laughs) the journey you have ahead of you is a daunting one. And like you said, one that's more focused on having to convince everyone else that artificial intelligence is worth investing the energy into than in convincing people that the technology, you know, needs more advances. I mean, because clearly the technology is already advancing at at a, a reasonable rate. At this point, it's just convincing people that it's worth using in, in every aspect of their life from personal to professional. Yeah, it really wasn't that long ago that you know, people thought, you know, if you sailed too far into the ocean, you were going to, you know, fall off the edge of a flat earth. Uh, it, it's funny how some of that stuff has come around. And there's, there's still some belief in, in, in that kind of scenario. But, you know, the, the behavior of, you know, fear of the new continues. Um, and, you know, I would say concern of the new is something that's really smart. And, and this is absolutely something to be concerned about. Um, but it's unavoidable. And I also think it's going to end up being a bigger help. So that's, that's what I'm working on. And, uh, I think more and more people, uh, will be involved in it as well. Definitely. Well, I'm excited to see where it goes and thank you so much for coming on the podcast to talk about it, Scott. Awesome, man. Good, Daniel. It's good to chat and thank you. Yeah, of course. And thank you everyone for listening to today's podcast. And if you'd like to find out more or listen to previous episodes, you can go to marketscale.com slash industries and subscribe to the latest articles, videos, and podcasts from your favorite industries. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin. Till next time.